Healthcare matters because you matter to Christ. What affects your soul affects your body, and you are only as helpful to others as you are healthy. Welcome to the Soul Care Matters podcast. Welcome back to the Soul Care Matters podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Burke, sitting alongside Jeff Ballard. And we are here today to talk about a pretty important episode and one that's near and dear to my heart. However, before we get started on that, Jeff, something that we talk about a lot on here is the need for self-care. As a matter of fact, at some point, we're recording these ahead of time. I don't know if it will have been before this episode or after this episode just yet, but we have a whole episode where we talk about what does it look like to take care of yourself if you're a caregiver. But one of the things that we encourage our listeners to do is pay special attention to the need for self-care. We talk about this in a variety of ways. But one thing that we encourage folks to do is don't spend all your time thinking about the ways you need to change and all the heavy things. One thing you should do is do something that's life giving. It can be a big thing or a little thing. So, Jeff, would you be willing to share with us what's something that you're doing right now for self-care that's life giving for you? Yes. A real specific thing that I'm doing is most weeks I'm playing basketball with a few friends. Okay. So just a small group of us get together, play half court basketball, which is great for those of us above 40 years old. And it's, it's so much fun. I look forward to it every week. Not only do I get exercise and get to play a game that I love, but I get to hang out with a small group of friends that I enjoy. You also get to show your dunking ability. Definitely not. (laughs) Have you ever dunked? Uh, that's debatable on a regulation goal. Okay. Yes. Okay. Back in the day, I could get up there. Okay. I couldn't palm the ball. Oh, got it. Uh, but if somebody threw me like a perfect alley-oop, I could, I could put it down. I've done of. it once in my life. And nice. it was the ugliest trash you've ever seen in your really? life. Really? Yeah. Hey. But hey, it was it pretty counts. good. It uh, counts. It was in practice. <laughs> it wasn't in an actual game. I don't yeah. know if that... But it happened in practice, and I was as surprised as anyone. <laughs> I never would have been able to do it in a game. Okay. So I don't know if that really... Even so life-giving. So physical exercise, spending time with friends, and just probably checking out from the heavy mental space that we live in yeah. most of the time. Yeah. I, think, I think for me, also... I don't know if maybe this is a thing for counselors and pastors, but something with physical activity is really helpful for me, too. I do not like working out. It is not a life-giving thing for me. Historically, I have tried and failed and tried and failed, but recently I have kind of found a rhythm of something that I enjoy. I read this book. I'm not necessarily recommending this book to anyone, but I read this book during my 100 books I read in 2022. (laughs) At my wife's suggestion, I read this book called The Strength Training Revolution, and it kind of lays out the scientific evidence for strength training being the best way to kind of live a healthy lifestyle. It doesn't knock cardio, but it says America is obsessed with cardio when really there are other good ways to do it. I found it fascinating. So I started, I guess, pretty consistent program of doing some strength training and it's four, I'm doing it four days a week. And I have found that on the days that I'm not doing it, I'm kind of like, oh, I kind of wish I could be doing that, but they tell you not to because you'll overtax your muscles, Mm. you'll get sore, and then you'll give up. So uh, I've really found that helpful. I found it focuses me for the day, and I feel feel better. That sounds great. So I'd love some tips on how to exercise more consistently. You're going to have to tell me more. Well, you should read that book. Yeah. And it's written by a guy from New York City. Oh, I should say, when I say I read it, I listened to the audible version of it. That counts. I mean, he's got a heavy Brooklyn accent, <laughs> so you gotta you gotta be careful with that. But I think you'd 
you'd benefit. Okay. Before we move on, I got to ask you, how many books are you aiming to read in 2023? No, I have not set a goal. But I hit 102. That's insane. Last year. It really is insane. I'm, I feel like if I'm going to try to top that, I'm going to just feel overwhelmed yeah. and not. So I'm going to, I'm going to set. So last year my goal was 50, right? That's what I originally said. I'm going to set it at 75. That's I'm going to set my goal yeah. at 75 and see, see what happens. That is a robust goal. So I we'll, hope you get it. We'll see what happens. But if listening to books counts, I can do that a lot more consistently. Yeah. All right. So we're going to jump into our topic today. And the topic we're talking about is childhood vows. Now, you might be thinking, what is that? I've never heard of that before. We're going to have Ryan define that here in just a minute. But before we get there, I want to talk about the importance of this. This is important because oftentimes we get stuck in unhealthy patterns, maybe it's sinful behaviors or just patterns of thinking, relational dysfunction, and we don't know why. Mm. And sometimes at the root of something like that is a childhood vow. Another reason why this is important, or maybe some of you in the, the audience are thinking, why, why talk about this? Shouldn't we just be focusing on scripture and what scripture says about the kinds of problems that we have and, and that people tend to go to counseling for? And while, yes, we would affirm scripture is sufficient and that it gives God's wisdom for our lives, and it gives us a comprehensive framework for understanding life and people and problems and solutions. At the same time, it's helpful to understand uh, people descriptively. And childhood vows is one of those things that can help us understand what actually happens in our lives to get us in those places where we're stuck. And so the more we can understand human behavior, human patterns of human behavior, the more we can actually accurately apply scripture mm. to those areas of yeah. our lives and the power of scripture becomes uh, evident and functional in a person's life. Yeah. So those are some of the reasons why this is important. Uh, before we jump in, just want to give a caveat. This might be a two-part episode. Mm. We're going to see, but we think we've got enough material for two parts. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Ryan, Start us off by telling us what is a childhood vow? Yeah. So a childhood vow, you may be sitting there thinking, well, that sounds pretty self-explanatory. It's a vow you make as a child. That's true, but there are more layers to it than that. So a childhood vow, as simply as I can describe it, is a vow that you make as a youngster in response to an experience that you have that caused some kind of difficult time period for you, some difficult emotions, some difficult whatever. I think it's easier to talk about this in an illustration, but think of it like this. Things that you experience as a child that cause you to experience shame, that make you feel forgotten, that maybe make you feel left out of things. Essentially, a childhood vow is you saying, how do I show up from here forward in a way that makes sure that what I experienced there never happens again? And that's a childhood vow. And a lot of times we make them unconsciously like we're not necessarily like saying out loud I vow from this day forward I am never going to or I am always going to do this but it is something that we start to engage with really really consistently to avoid experiencing the feelings that we had yeah. when the hard thing happened. In fact, I think that's what's so insidious about these is we we almost never consciously think right. you know I, I'm never going to let this happen again. Right. It's because it ha it's happening at an unconscious layer right. that it gets lodged in there. It's stuck without us even realizing it. And, and most of the things that cause this, I, I, th 
I think this is fair to say the majority, let's say the majority of things that cause someone to make a childhood vow are traumatic, really challenging, difficult things, but not always. Sometimes a childhood vow can come from just a repeated message that you've heard over and over as a child. I can't tell you how many times in the counseling office I've heard someone say, well, I grew up in a family where I always heard the message that if you work hard, you can get whatever you want. And then years later, they're sitting in my office with all kinds of anxiety, frustration, anger, because that actually proved to not be true. That wasn't necessarily a traumatic thing that happened to someone, but that became a vow. I'm always going to work hard. Work becomes the number one thing. Sometimes when I'm counseling folks who struggle with like workaholism, that that's where that comes from, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. The other thing to think about in regards to childhood vows is childhood vows come from the meaning that we make of certain circumstances. So we as human beings are meaning makers. We don't just live our lives based on the things that happen to us. We live our lives based on our interpretation of the things that happen to us. And so we make meaning of things. Best way I can explain this is to tell you a story. This is me being in the glass house. This is uh, a truly challenging thing that happened to me as a kid where I made a childhood vow, but I didn't realize it until years later. When I was a kid, I was seven years old, seven and eight years old. I was diagnosed with ADHD. And this was back in a time when There wasn't a lot of data out there. There were no like real special uh, um, accommodations made for kids who have ADHD in school. Nobody knew what to do with it. And I went to a small private school and they especially didn't know what to do with it. So when I was in second grade, I had a really hard time sitting still, being quiet, staying focused, not distracting the other kids. And my second grade teacher did not really know what to do with that. I think she had good intentions, but she just didn't really know what to do with that. So she started viewing my behavior strictly as disobedience. And as a result, I experienced a lot of different punishments. I went to the principal's office. I missed recess, couldn't participate in class parties, you know, all of the things that you've heard about, but none of it seemed to curb the behavior. And I think she grew to a point where she was very much done with Ryan's distracting behavior in class, which I get, I understand, but there was no understanding of what I was experiencing. And to be perfectly honest, in in my my estimation, no attempt at understanding what I was experiencing. And so what she started doing is every day, the first time that I would distract the class or disobey in her words, she would move my desk out into the hallway Mm -hmm. and I would have to sit out in the hallway for the entire school day while my classmates would walk back and forth and all the other kids in the school and all the other teachers and any visitors that came to the school. They sit, they see this one kid sitting out in the hallway by himself basically doing nothing and keep in mind that I'm also a pretty relational guy and so the cutoff from the other kids and from the teachers and everything was really hard I can't tell you how many times I heard people walking by whispering to one another like he's the bad kid Mm -hmm. he's the kid that doesn't know how to shut up and sit still he's the kid that you know can't handle his life and all all this stuff including teachers I can see teachers faces in my mind saying some of these things and this happened a lot I mean, a lot, a lot. Of course, I did not go home and tell my parents about this because it was embarrassing. Like, it was shameful, and I didn't know what to do about it. But I do remember sitting out there in the hallway one day and having, as much as a seven-year-old can, having a recognition that I hate the way that this makes me feel. It makes me feel ashamed, embarrassed, kind of angry, and I do not ever want to feel this again. So I think, like we talked about, unconsciously I made a childhood vow 
during that time that I was never going to be put in a position where I was exposed again. Exposed exposure. That's the word that I kept mm. kept thinking about. So years later, when I'm working through this in counseling, this comes up and the, the counselor kind of helped me realize that this was a formative moment for me because I, I said from this moment on, I will not put myself in a position where I'm exposed or even opening myself up to any kind of feedback, really, mm -hmm. from other people. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So how did that then play out kind of as you grew older yeah. and what what led you to the place where you realize this is a problem? Yeah, so this is one of the things to recognize about childhood vows, too. One of the ways that you know if you have a childhood vow is when you find yourself feeling like you need to shapeshift or morph into a different version of yourself or to try to be like someone else in different contexts in order to avoid whatever the painful thing is. So... Uh, one way to think about it is what are what are areas when you find yourself getting bigger or getting smaller? So for me, it was all about getting smaller. So my behavior in second grade was noticeable to other people because I I just was who I was as a seven year old kid. And I just let it all out there. But then as I grew older, I realized, well, I used to have to sit in the hallway because something's wrong with me. And so I don't want anybody to see the things that are wrong with me. So I'm going to make myself smaller, invisible in some context, or it was less invisible and it was more blending in. Like I could be and act however somebody needed me to be to avoid the possibility of being exposed and experiencing the pain of once again, somebody essentially saying something's wrong with you. And so that has played out all of my life. Like I could walk you through junior high and high school and college and grad school and marriage and parenting and even being a pastor of ways in which that plays out. Like there are a number of times that I even sit in meetings here where I think, oh, I'd really like to offer this insight. But I'm like, Ooh, but if I do, it's possible that I, I have this this voice in the back of my head that says you might accidentally say something heretical. So you should say nothing. Mm. And I get smaller and yeah. I never, sh you know, share those things because I don't want to be exposed, even if it's accidental heresy. <laughs> so I can laugh about that now. But yeah. like, that's a life dominating thing for me. Yeah. And it comes from this valve. Like, I'm not going to put myself in a place where I'm exposed. Yeah. And so w with that particular example, what, w what were you afraid of would happen if you spouted some accidental heresy? <laughs> yeah, I. That's a great question. I, I think there's multiple answers to that. I think one is, um, and we'll get into this a little bit later. One is like, I won't have the approval that I want. I won't have the respect that I want. A, a driving force for me is I desire to be able to influence culture for the better. And I think in some ways that's really good. In some ways it's probably a little bit, you know, stronger of a passion than it should be. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, if you say something accidentally heretical, your opportunity to influence culture is out the window, mm -hmm. which I, I don't actually think is true. I don't think that's rooted in any truth of or experience here, but I, it's a very real voice in my head yeah. saying things like that. Yeah. I, I think that illustrates too why this is so important because oftentimes we're, we're operating in the present based on this vow we made right. because of our, you know, experiences from the past. Right. And so it's oftentimes just confusing. Like, why am I, why am I acting this way or why am I relating this way now? Well, and it's really interesting to think about. So like, even with my story, so I was seven years old when this unconscious vow was created and third grade, I had some rough moments too, but that's where they started to figure out, oh, there's more going on here than just him being 
a naughty kid, you know. And so from about third grade on, I figured out how to play a role really, really well. How to keep my mouth shut, how to stay out of trouble, how to still feel connected to people, but never let them see the parts of me that I just assumed would make them not. So like in some ways it worked. Yeah. And that's the thing about childhood vows that is really wild to think about. It it did what I wanted it to do for a long, long yeah. time. But the older I got, the less effective it was and actually the more destructive it became. Mm-hmm. One of the guys who I like to read what he says about this stuff, his name's Jim Harrington. And he says, if, if you think about it, operating as an adult off childhood vows is basically saying the seven-year-old version of myself gets to dictate how I'm going to yeah. behave. Yeah. And you would never do that yeah. in real life. But that's how we... That's how we operate. That's how we act. And, and I remember coming to grips with the fact that so many decisions that I make come from this place of don't be exposed. Yeah. Like you don't want you don't want to take that risk. And it all coming from this experience I had as mm. a second grade kid. Yeah. So at what point did you begin to learn and understand childhood vows? How did you learn about those? Where'd that come in? Yeah, I I think that I first heard about childhood vows probably in grad school. I went to grad school twice. I couldn't get enough punishment. So I went to <laughs> I went to grad school twice and I can't remember which one it was, but I think I started hearing about childhood vows then and I'm bit, and I I actually remember thinking, boy, that would be really hard if somebody was dealing with that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that sounds terrible. I would oh man, my heart just goes out to those people. And then I had another experience that was a difficult breakup experience that I I ended up going to do some counseling after. And in the course of that, somebody said like, you know, tell me a little bit about your childhood. And this thing that I do in counseling all the time, they were like, write down the 10 most terrible things that ever happened to you, which sounds like a really vicious thing to do in counseling. (laughs) It wasn't on the first day, folks. It was it was well into that relationship. And this was one of the first things that I talked about. Then he pointed out, I think you he's like, it sounds to me like you made a vow that you know, this aspect of what you assumed shame over mm-hmm. based on people's response to you is something you're never going to let people do again. And I remember sitting there and being like, well, of course I'm not. Like, why would someone do that? Yeah. Like, why would you open yourself up to the possibility yeah. of that? And then he said this phrase to me that has stuck in my mind. He said, when you're a kid, a childhood vow can actually be a survival skill and do exactly what you want it to yeah. do. But as an adult, it can kill you. But like looking at a childhood vow and saying, no, you're actually a bad thing for me now. Feel somehow disloyal or like you're betraying something. Mm-hmm. And I think it's okay to own that, to name that and say, this feels weird. This thing that has gotten me through so many hard things is now actually not helpful yeah. and maybe even destructive. So I was, I mean, I was in my mid 20s when that probably mid to late 20s, yeah. shortly before I got married. So I don't know, 25, 26, yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah. And I, and I, I'm certainly not arrived. I mean, I've had this, I've had that voice in my head saying, don't speak up in meetings as recently as like two weeks ago. Yeah. But I do think I'm aware of it. I know what it's trying to do. And I've, I've started by God's grace to be able to implement ways of dislodging, you know, childhood vows. Listen, don't worry. We're not going to make you sit outside your office. <laughs> I appreciate in a that. desk out there if you misbehave. Yeah. Just, just want to reassure you. If you do, I will cause so much trouble. <laughs> you will never recover. No, I say that. I, I joke about that. And yet this really is a serious yeah. topic. I mean, I see this all the time. It's all the time. so common. And sometimes, like, praise God that you discovered mm-hmm. this in your mid-20s. Right. I, I see people often who 
well into adulthood are still operating out of childhood vows, right. you know, ways they develop to cope with really hard things as a child right. that they've never really seen or, or noticed. So it can it can really cause a lot of destruction and it can be very sad. And and it's it's not easy work. Oh man, I, I remember when this when I first kind of agreed to step into some of this with the counselor being like, all right, I'm ready. Let's get it over with. Let's just jump in. And he was like, this is not going to go quickly. Mm -hmm. He was like, this is not going to be a like one or two session kind of deal. And we worked on it for months and we talked through it. And I just started having all these moments of realization of where I believed things other than the gospel. Yeah. Like I absolutely a hundred percent acted on beliefs that were contrary to what the gospel says, despite being a follower of Jesus for a long time. And I just like, because it felt so in, intuitive, instinctual. This is how you survive. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I think that gets to, to why this is important for Christians, because like, you know, we all, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know, you've got your doctrinal statement from your church that you probably mm-hmm. sign when you become a member, you've, you've got some set of beliefs that you would ascribe to. Mm-hmm. And yet when the rubber meets the road in life, oftentimes we find ourselves acting in ways that are contrary to right. what we say we believe. Right. And, and sometimes this is what's underneath that, right. where we have these deeply held beliefs and commitments that are actually contrary to the gospel, to what we say we believe as Christians. Right. Which is why I think something like counseling is so beneficial, even if you're in a pretty good spot and you don't, you're not necessarily in a crisis moment. Because one thing that is universally true is that we operate or behave based on what we believe, not on what we know. Mm. But I think those two things get conflated and confused so frequently and so consistently. So yeah. What would you say is the difference between those two things, what you believe and what you know? Yeah. I think, I think you can have a conceptual understanding of something. The illustration that I use, I know you've heard me use this before. The illustration that I use a lot is, let's say you work like a 10, 12 hour day and you never got to take lunch and you come home and you are ravenously hungry. Like you are just like in the pit of your stomach. If I don't put something in there, I am going to just give up the ghost, right? And sitting on the table when you walk through the door are two plates of food. One is a plate of freshly steamed broccoli. Mm-hmm. Like the, like I'm talking like came out of the steamer, not like pot on the stove kind of thing. Like this stuff is good. And sitting next to it is a plate of, let's say tacos, but like high end tacos, not Taco Bell tacos. Mm. We're talking like good, like street tacos okay. kind of thing. Right. Okay. And so you sit down at the table and the question is posed to you by someone in the room, which one of these is better for you? What would you say? Begrudgingly, I would say the broccoli. Right. Because conceptually, you understand if I eat the broccoli, it's better fiber. It's going to be kinder to my digestive system. It's got more health value, long-term health benefit. But in reality, which one are you going to eat? Oh, hands down. Right. The tacos. Going to go to town on those bad boys because the question is not which do I know is better for me. We conceptually understand that. The question behind the question is, which do I think is going to make me feel better? Yeah. And I believe that the tacos are going to make me feel better. Mm -hmm. So behavior follows belief, not conceptual understanding. But what happens in our lives as followers of Jesus, especially those of us who have been following him and been in church for years and years and years, is we will we will try to convince ourselves that we believe things that we don't yeah. actually believe. <laughs> That's exactly the phrase I, I had in my head too. We convince ourselves yes. that we believe things. And, and we'll convi- and we'll be very eloquent in defending the position that, for example, like I believe that my identity is rooted in Christ. And so I don't care what other people think of me. But like I say so often in counseling, if I were to follow you around like a shadow for two weeks, what would 
convince me that that's actually what you yeah. believe. Yeah. So with childhood vows, you believe something that dictates your behavior. As an adult, you try to convince yourself that you don't believe that that's still true, but your behavior indicates that you very much still do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's what creates sometimes a challenge in Christian environments because we we so value professed belief. Right. You know, aligning our beliefs to what our group says is right. orthodoxy. Absolutely. And so it's easy. I think it's easier for for those of us in that kind of a context to have this list of things we say we believe which maybe we do at some level, but we actually have some other more deeply rooted beliefs, the things that we actually believe at the core of ourselves. Uh, oh, yeah. And and we're talking about childhood vows. Something else that is really common are what are called childhood scripts or scripts from our past. Mm-hmm. Some people use that term. A script from our past it is essentially something that we were taught. This is the way you communicate. These are the things that are important and have value. So you should always be talking about these things. My whole belief that I might accidentally say something heretical comes from a script from the past. Yeah. I grew up in a culture where like you were doctrinally sound or else. Yeah. That was the most important thing. Like about. if you feel anxiety or something like that, feel that on your own time. Because when you're like at church or in small group or something like that, I didn't, this wasn't so much true in my family, but in a lot of the other environments, especially Christian environments, I found myself thinking, I, don't, I can't talk about my anxiety or I can't talk about this thing I'm afraid of. I need to talk about how magnificent it is that the doctrine of justification has just changed my life every single minute of every single day. And so not talking about that and accidentally letting it slip that I'm experiencing anxiety and heaven forbid even doubt of things that I had been taught that's accidental heresy scripts from the past things that I actually believe dictating the way that I behave yeah all right well that was some awesome stuff thank you Ryan for sharing that we probably didn't even get as far along as we anticipated Mm -hmm. we would but that's why we gave the disclaimer up front this might be a two-part maybe three-part I don't know no probably two-part episode but we got to wrap it up for today and we'll we'll come come back and we'll do some more on child childhood mouse next week do you have maybe a, a, a last word Word you want to share for today? Yeah. I, if there's anybody who's listening to this, the next episode will get into more of the how do you identify? Like if you think that it's possible you have this, but you can't put your finger on it, how do you identify it? We'll get into some kind of tools that you can use for that. But for today, if there's anybody out there listening who is maybe thinking like, boy, this sounds like it could be something in my life, but I'm a little nervous to step into it. Be brave. It's it is hard and it is challenging, but be brave. God meets you in the middle of challenges in ways that you would never expect. That's been true in my story. I can share more of that next time, but be brave, take the risk and don't do it alone. Um, One of the things that I'll talk about a little bit more next time is find a trusted and safe person. Often this is a pastor, a counselor, therapist, somebody like that, that you can sit with and process this with, but also maybe your spouse or a close friend or somebody in your small group can also be a good place to start. They may not be able to guide you through the whole thing, but it's a good place to start. So be brave and don't try to tackle it alone. Yeah, that's a good word. Well, that's all for this episode of the Soul Care Matters podcast. Tune in again for our next episode uh, where we'll pick up the conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks again for listening to the Soul Care Matters podcast. Join the conversation with us on Instagram by following us at College Park Soul Care or email us at info at collegeparksoulcare.com. We'll be back with more helpful conversations in the next episode of the Soul Care Matters podcast.